Good morning, Redeemer. Oh, it's so good to be with you. What a joy. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. Normally, we come to a text of Scripture and walk through it pretty much verse by verse and talk about what it says. That's Bible exposition. We believe in Bible exposition. We don't think topical studies are wrong, and I'm going to give a topical study this morning. It's not our normal way of preaching. I'm not the normal preacher, so if you don't like it, please come back next week. Dave will do a much better job. We're very excited about Dave going through the book of Genesis, and I think you'll be blessed richly as you delve into the amazing story of Genesis. But until then, I wanted, I wanted to share with you as a sermon part of the new book I'm writing called... Uh, Evangelism, a culture of discipleship, a culture of evangelism, uh, kind of redundant, department of redundancy department. Um, so I, I thought I'd share that with you as a sermon. So it's not a, exactly like it is in the book, but I want to go through the various things that we look at when we think of developing a culture of evangelism together as a community. We have the first, uh, first verses from Philippians, um, which is sort of the framework for all of the all of the sermon today and I wanted to say if you're here from another faith background or if you've gone to church all your life but you're really kind of checking out Christianity you're not sure what you believe you have this opportunity to look inside of what we think when we talk about faith as a community so you can you can see who we are more by uh, by listening to this sermon one of the things that Paul says beautifully in 7 and 8 here, I, I think we have more text, but I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my great witness how I yearn, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. For as long as I can remember I've lived life with friends. I brought friends home with me as a kid. My earliest memories of our backyard filled with friends to the delight of my outgoing mother. In university, I rarely studied alone. Well, okay, I rarely studied. But anyway, when I did, it was with a band of brothers and sisters. I married my best friend. On the job, the work I most enjoy is work that puts me with people I admire and call friends. I've taken friends with me to different continents around the world. And I've made friends with people who live there too. There are struggles for me, of course. I'm struggling to figure out how to write a book with friends, for instance. But despite the occasional required individual activity, my life's desire from the backyard to around the world is to be with friends. I always have. It's how I'm wired. So why is it that an extrovert like myself thinks of evangelism only in individual terms? Why is it that most instructions I read on the topic of evangelism concerns itself with individual effort and action? And as I think about it, why has much of the evangelistic instruction I've given over the years centered on the individual effort in evangelism? Now, certainly there are good reasons for focusing on personal evangelism. After all, we give an account 
to others of our firsthand experience with the living Christ. Giving firsthand witness to Christ, that's about as individual as you can get. But there are good reasons to think of evangelism in community too. For one, evangelism is scary. I mean, sure, there's the occasional person who seems unperturbed about sharing their faith regardless of the consequences. But ask most normal people about what hinders evangelism in their own lives. And the vast majority will tell you it's fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of looking stupid. Fear of being lumped into weird stereotypes about evangelists. So why do something scary by yourself? We should work to share our faith with others. With apologies to G.K. Chesterton, it's not that evangelism has been tried and found wanting. It's that evangelism has been found difficult and left untried. So why do something difficult without friends to pull you along? Think of the other benefits. It holds us accountable. It strengthens our resolve. We learn from one another. We can rejoice in success, cry in failure. Shared experiences in an intense situation bonds us together. It just makes sense to share our faith alongside friends. Actually, it doesn't take much to convince most Christians that evangelism within community is the way to go. It's not even hard to find people pulling together to accomplish an evangelistic task. But usually... Usually, when we think of evangelism in community, we think of the big evangelistic program, which is not the same. Now, now by programs, I mean the occasional big event with a well-known speaker, an exciting topic. At at some point during the event, there's a presentation of the gospel. Maybe maybe the program is low-key, geared for seekers, like a service project or a sports program, say, with the hope that maybe there's a door open for a spiritual con conversation. God can use programs. I know people who have come to faith through evangelistic events. And for the record, I often promote, speak at, and have personally seen God use evangelistic programs. But I do not think they are the best or even the primary way we should share our faith. A church in my hometown sponsored an Easter pageant for years. The idea was to take the amazing story of Easter and put it in a play that would call people to Christ. Passion plays are nothing new, but the desire on the part of the elders of this church was to make sure that the gospel would be clear in the performance, and at the end of the performance, people would be given an opportunity to respond to the message of the gospel. This required clever scripting to overcome limitations of the stage, and of course, the performance needed to be entertaining, so there were songs and really good animal, and lots and lots of acting. Church members were called upon to build elaborate sets. They worked tirelessly to meet rigorous production schedules. Zoos and farms were emptied of animals and animal trainers. Camels and sheep and cows walked the aisles to get to the stage to the delight of the audience. Doves flew on cue for the most part. As the passion play became more popular professional Hollywood producers were hired. Even Jesus in the play was a non-Christian Hollywood performer. The Easter pageant's popularity soared beyond all expectations. Even though the church had one of the biggest sanctuaries in the area, demand for seats stripped supply. 
Free tickets were distributed for crowd control. There were weeks of performances. Command performances were added. People streamed in from outlying towns and from distant land. The program took on a life of its own. And when it came together, what a performance. The acting superb, the singing professional, the animals enthralled the kids. No one slept through this telling of the gospel. The highlight, at least for my kids, was when the white stallion reared up on stage as the satyrian on horseback flashed his sword. I never quite figured out how they got that out of the gospel story. After the crucifixion, done a bit more tastefully and theatrically than the real thing, Jesus was resurrected to the rafters through a series of clever wires. Truly amazing. There was just one problem. When the church looked at what was happening over the years, besides the program being really, really popular, nobody was coming to Jesus. For all the massive amounts of money, the thousands and thousands of people in attendance, the amount of time building sets and hiring people, the sweeping up of animal poop, and the meeting of strict city codes for hoisting people into the air on wires, people were not coming to Jesus. Not at least in any more numbers than one would expect during the regular preaching of the Word. So the church wisely shut it down. I bet it was a hard call. People love programs. But the church decided in the end that if the members spent half the time they spent on the production in friendly evangelism with neighbors or co-workers or fellow students, they would see a better response to the gospel with even more people. Now, if you think about it, there's no way you could get all the non-Christians into your sanctuary that the members of our church could meet in the course of a week, no matter how big the sanctuary, no, no matter how big the ballroom. The fact is, most people come to faith through family, small group Bible studies, talking with friends after a church service, Christians intentionally talking about the gospel as a way of life. Now, oddly, it seems that evangelistic programs do other things better than evangelism. They produce community among Christians who take part in them. They encourage believers to take a stand for Christ. They can be terrific ways to break into new places of ministry. But when you take a cold, hard look at programs, things just don't add up. For one, there's an inverse economic bang for the buck. The more money you spend on programs, it seems the less fruit for evangelism. So, for example, when people under 21 were asked how they came to be born again, the age when most people are born again, only 1% of those under 21 said it was through TV or other media. While a whopping 43% said they came to faith through a family friend or family member. Just think of the cost comparison between a cup of coffee and TV programming. Think of the effect. Think that moms lead more people to Jesus than TV programs. But we seem to have an insatiable hunger for programs. Why? Because programs are like sugar. 
It's tasty, even addictive. But it takes away the desire for other healthy food. There's a quick burst of energy over time. But it only makes you flabby, and a steady diet will kill you. A strict diet of evangelistic programs, evangelistic events, produces malnourished evangelism, just as eating sugar can make us feel like we've eaten when we have not. Programs often make us feel like we have done evangelism when we have not. So we should have a healthy unease with programs. Use them in moderation. We should remember that God did not send an event. He sent His Son. So what do we do? We want to have evangelism in community. We long to have friends alongside us when we share our faith. At the same time, we see the limits, even the dangers of programs. Is there some alternative? I'd like to make a case for something completely different, something that is both communal and personal, a culture of evangelism. From the outset, understanding culture, any culture, as we well know, is difficult to grasp simply by reading a book. But when I talk to church leaders and pastors from around the world and tell them that I long for a culture of evangelism, I don't need to define it. They understand intuitively what I'm talking about. They yearn for it too. They long for their churches and fellowships to have a loving community committed to sharing the gospel as an ongoing culture, not the occasional evangelistic raid. And though it's next to impossible to instruct someone about every action needed for a culture of evangelism, I do think we can describe the yearnings that we feel in our heart, much like Paul talked about the yearnings in his heart for the Philippians. Paul says that a better frame is a picture of a culture of evangelism. Here's my top ten. I have top ten yearnings, things that I so long for us to be when I think of Redeemer and a culture of evangelism. Number one, yearning for a culture of evangelism that is motivated by love, a love for Jesus and a love for the gospel. Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you know, evangelism always feels like pushing the ball uphill. But when I'm with people whose motivation for evangelism springs from a love for Jesus, the perception of evangelism changes. In a culture of evangelism, with a motivation of love, there's no need to badger people to share their faith. It's something we long to do. When a person is compelled by love to share the gospel, it's a beautiful thing. When a, a community is motivated to share the love of God out of their love for Jesus, it's joyfully glorious. Just last week, I was with some friends who were encouraging uh, about who were encouraged about some new believers and how they had, were growing spiritually. Brian turned to Seanel and he said, "Seanel, I've got to hand it to you. Danny was so hard-hearted to the gospel; most people would have given up, but you pursued him with amazing love." both for Danny and for Jesus. You didn't stop. And God used you. It's astounding to see how the gospel has changed Danny's life. Now, as I listened to Brian encourage Seanel, I was encouraged to remember the love I have for Jesus and his gospel 
and was reminded how much I want to share the gospel with others. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always oppose us in evangelism. But in a culture of evangelism, rooted in a heart of love for Jesus and the gospel, it feels like the mountain has tilted down a little and the ball begins to roll. Point two. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I was talking with a British friend. He mused, I wonder when they lost their confidence in the gospel. That was not language I was used to, so I said, what do you mean? We were speaking about a parachurch ministry that had once been vibrant, a center of gospel witness, but had lately fallen into lukewarmness. History's full of such stories. He glanced at me and then he said, I mean, at what point did they start trusting gimmicks and worldly methods rather than the plain message of the gospel? Brothers and sisters, I yearn for a culture of evangelism that never trades confidence in the gospel for confidence in techniques or personality or entertainment gimmicks. I want to protect you by telling you that those who oppose the gospel will always tell Christians that the gospel is made irrelevant in the modern world. They did that ages ago when the world uh, that we look back on doesn't look all that modern. They said it back then. They'll do it till Jesus returns. And weak Christians will believe them and be ashamed of the gospel. Don't ever give in to shame of the gospel. In a culture of evangelism, we build one another up. We remind each other to put aside that lie, to put aside any temptation to trust the world's view of the gospel, worldly practices, instead of full confidence in the power of the plain message of the gospel. Three, yearning for a culture of evangelism that understands the dangers of entertainment. I want to read a passage from Ezekiel. It's a little obscure. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. Um, And it's a little bit longer than the other passages. But basically, God is talking to Ezekiel about his congregation. And he says, Your people who talk together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses say to one another and each to his brother, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. They will come to you as people come, and they will sit before you as my people, and they will hear what you say, but they will not do it, for with lustful talks in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on gain, and behold, you are like to them one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Basically, what was going on, this is thousands of years ago where people were gathering together and talking about Ezekiel and the social network of the day. It was the walls and the doors. And they were calling out to one another, hey, let's go hear the hot new show in town, Ezekiel's preaching. They go to hear him as if he's a lustful singer, a great musical performer. They saw Ezekiel not as a prophet, speaking to them about their salvation, but an entertainer. And for all their enthusiasm about the performance, what's on their mind is sex and money, not obedience to God. Does that sound modern or what? 
To get people to show up for a church service nowadays, simply play great music, Twitter a titillating topic, and make sure you have great speakers. It's not that hard. But beware. God warned Ezekiel. He warns us today. You may get a crowd, but you will not get their hearts. To get hearts is only a work of the Spirit. In a culture of evangelism, we fight against thinking that entertainment is ministry or that ministry is entertainment. We declare together the wonders of God. We tell each other of His great salvation, His glory among the nations, His marvelous works, and we trust the Spirit to work in people's hearts. I long for a culture of evangelism in which we fight against the idea that entertainment is ministry, understands its dangers, sees it for what it is. Actually, entertainment is crouching at the evangelical door waiting to devour us, the world around. So we yearn for a culture of evangelism that never sacrifices to the idolatry of entertainment, but serves up the rich fare found in the gospel of Christ. Four, yearning for a culture of evangelism that sees people clearly. Well, I've spoken to you about this before. But from now on, therefore, out of 2 Corinthians 5.16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul speaks about how out of his vision and the vision that Christ gives us as new creatures, new creatures in Christ, that we see people differently. We no longer see them through the eyes of the world. We, we see them through the eyes of God. How easy it is to see people through the cultural lenses of the world regard people based on externals, sexist, racist, superficial views. When Paul says that we should see people through the eyes of Christ, he means for us to have a gospel view. So we see people as valuable, beautiful creatures made in the image of God, each and every one of us carrying the mark of God, which is why Christians believe all people have dignity, worth, and value. At the same time, we recognize every person is fallen, sinful, separated from God. That all people have taken the image of God and twisted it into horrible shapes, which is why Christians are not enamored with other people either. In a culture of evangelism, most of all, we're mindful of what people can become. People can become new creations in Christ, renewed, restored, transformed by the power of God. I yearn to be in a culture of evangelism with Christians who see the hearts of others and remember that they are image bearers. I long to be in a culture of evangelism with Christians who see the hearts of others and remember the separation from God. Most of all, I long for a culture of evangelism that remembers what people can become through the gospel. Five. Yearning for a culture of evangelism that pulls together as one. In Philippians 1, 3 through 5, Paul says, I thank God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayers with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Paul wrote to the entire community of, of Philippi, telling them that his gratefulness for them sprang out of their partnership in the ministry of the gospel. It was a culture of evangelism. They all pulled together for the gospel. They would never have thought of hiring a minister of evangelism since everyone is on game. 
I uh, coached my son's football team, his soccer team, when, when he was five years old. And we would gather the whole team together. Very, very cute. And we would ask the question, okay, team, when, our, when the other team has the ball, which of our players are on defense? And they would shout, sometimes their mouth was full of orange slices, but they would shout with gusto, everyone. And then we would ask, and when we have the ball, which of our players is on offense? Everyone, they would shout. Now, when it came to an actual game, putting that concept into play proved a little more difficult with five-year-olds, much like evangelism. (laughs) We're all on game. All of us. In a culture of evangelism, there's an understanding that everyone is on game. Have you ever ever heard someone say, or perhaps you've said it before, evangelism is not my gift, as if that excuses you from evangelism? That's a kindergarten understanding of evangelism. True Christians are all called to share their faith as a point of faithfulness, not gifting. In a maturing culture of evangelism, I long to share my faith in the context of a community that understands what I'm doing and pulls with me. So when I I bring a friend to church, others don't assume that person is a Christian. They're not shocked when I introduce a friend and say, this is Bob, and Bob is checking out Christianity. And not only are they not shocked by that, but they respond with something like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I was in the same place you are a couple years ago, and I'd love to hear about it. What are you thinking through? We long for a culture of evangelism where we are all working together towards the goal of witness for Christ. Six, yearning for a culture of evangelism that teaches one another. Follow the sound patterns of words that you heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1.13. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Peter instructs us to be ready to share reasons and answers for the hope within you. Reasons and answers need thoughtful training. Paul says, follow the solid teaching that he has given Timothy. Recently at a student conference, after an appeal to follow Jesus was given, students were said, if you've accepted Jesus, break, break the light stick that you received on entrance to the hall and hold them up to celebrate your new faith. Wow. Cool. The room went aglow. But what does it mean? How's that different than the old school altar call? And listen, light sticks are tame. Christians are running motorcycles on stage or shooting off fireworks at the church service or parachuting into arenas. Just just to list a few crazy things we do. Does, Does anyone really understand why we're doing this stuff? I suspect, actually, it's at the expense of in depth Bible study. I would happily, happily trade all the razzmatazz of stunning speakers and mind blowing music and even famous Easter pageants for a culture of evangelism where people have been trained to know how to lead a person through the gospel of Mark in a Bible study and can point to the message of the gospel in the text and help a person come to Christ based on the truth of the gospel. In a culture of evangelism, people are carefully teaching each other how to share their faith, undergirded with solid biblical principles. Seven. I'm yearning for a culture of evangelism in which people are sharing their faith or attempting to share their faith 
who are celebrated and honored and prayed for. Philippians 2, 19 through 22. I hope for the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he served me in the gospel. I just love it when Paul honors other people in the passage. I love how Paul honors Timothy for his work in the gospel. Pastor John regularly starts off a fellowship time by asking for stories from those who have opportunities to speak about Jesus in the course of the week. And then after they share, he has someone pray for them. It's not that hard. It doesn't take that much time. But it's hugely important in developing a culture of evangelism. There's nothing so discouraging than feeling that a church is more interested in manning the nursery than sharing the faith. Jason, if you're in the room, please, I want you to man the nursery. I I really do, but I I need to say that uh, for the book. I yearn to be in a culture of evangelism where the evangelistic temps are championed. Even if the evangelistic effort doesn't lead to a gospel conversation, even if an attempt failed, knowing that the evangelistic failure is seen as better than not trying in evangelism at all. Eight. Yearning for a culture of evangelism that knows how to affirm and celebrate new life. Colossians 1, 3 through 4, and then verse 7. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Paul remembers the new birth in people. He didn't platform them inappropriately. He didn't ignore them either. He knew how to affirm and celebrate new believers. I long for a culture of evangelism that celebrates new new life in Christ in the right way. After a series of one-on-one meetings and Bible studies with Mark Dever, Rob rejected his former atheistic faith and told Mark he had become a Christian. Well, Rob, said Mark, tell me what you mean. Rob explained the gospel and how he had repented of his unbelieving way of life and put his complete faith and trust in Christ. Then Mark said, brother, from what you've told me, I agree with you. You have become a Christian. Let's pray. After they prayed, Mark said, now you understand the mark of true conversion is not a prayer, but a long-term walk with Jesus. So even though I believe you have come to Christ, we'll see what happens as time goes on. Mark's response, I think, is a model for us. It's what I call the hallelujah and we'll see response. Hallelujah in one sense that true conversion is the best thing that could ever happen to anyone and we should celebrate it. We'll see because we know that conversion can be counterfeit, even if unintentionally. So the most important check is threefold. A good understanding of the gospel, a changed life, a long-term walk with Christ. Mark didn't keep Rob's conversation a secret, neither did he platform Rob as an instant celebrity. Rob shared appropriately how he had come to faith at his baptism, but there were trials to come, and how he walked through them was more important than any conversion story. I long for a culture of evangelism in which Christians know how to respond to those who have recently come to faith. Nine. Yearning for a culture of evangelism that feels risky 
and is dangerous. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Philippians 1, 12 through 13. As we see in the following verse, Paul saw the battles as waging war on thoughts opposed to God. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Are we willing to call people to risky evangelism? I long for a culture of evangelism that's risky. Risky in the sense that we're living against the predominant culture. Mostly that means disregarding what people think about us. Door of Hope Church in Portland, Oregon is reaching out to hipsters with great effect. Last year, the church decided to take their regular Sunday evening service to a nearby park. It was their regular service, just open air. They faced sneers and hecklers and other people that were rude, but others still who saw their kindness and their love for each other and joined them with great curiosity. That's counterculture in the midst of counterculture. Others take different kind of risks. As Joanna says, I don't even know how to do a Bible study without a couple people from other faith backgrounds in the group. We should all think through how to take risks in our particular context. And a funny thing happens when we do. When we take risks, we become dangerous. That is in the spiritual realms. Dangerous to those who, as Paul said, have minds set against God. So when Paul says the gospel has become known in the imperial guard, and when he sends greetings from those who have come to faith at the end of the book of Philippians, it's clear that Paul has seen some of the guards come to faith. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul risked, and his risky life for the gospel was a path to jail. But I've always loved the observation. It was not so much that Paul was chained to a guard, but that a guard was chained to Paul. I yearn to be in a culture of evangelism that risks. I long for a culture of evangelism where atheists and non-Christians see their fellow atheists and their fellow non-Christians coming to faith, an indication that we're part of a dangerous culture of evangelism. Ten. Yearning for a culture of evangelism that loves the church and sees it as the chosen and best method of evangelism. Acts 2, 46 through 47 And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I long for a culture of evangelism in the context of a healthy church where the great furnace of evangelism happens, where it's understood that the church acts like the church and we act like a culture of evangelism. The culture of evangelism is poured into a healthy church. I long for that. Where Christians are so in love with Jesus that when they go about their regular time of worship, they become an image of the gospel. A church or fellowship that disarms with love, not entertainment, and lives out counterculture confidence in the power of the gospel. Where the greatest celebrations happen over those who've come to faith. And the heroes are those who risk their reputations to share. I yearn for a culture of evangelism with brothers and sisters whose backs are up to the wall, our backs are up to mine in the battle, and I'm taught and I teach each other what it means to share our faith, and I see the leaders in our church leading people to Jesus. 
a culture of evangelism in the context of the church where you can point to changed lives. Where you see people stand up almost daily and say, I came to this church two years ago and I didn't know God, but now I do. I long to be a part of a culture like that. I bet you do too. Kelly, a 16-year-old, traveled from her home country in Brazil to attend high school as an exchange student in Portland, Oregon. Connie and John, Kelly's host family, were pleasant, easygoing people whose family regularly attended a gospel-centered church. Kelly was a good student. She was an experienced cross-cultural person coming from a Japanese-Brazilian background. And she moved with ease in the Portland High School. Connie and John prayed for Kelly, took her to church, but Kelly didn't seem that interested in Christian faith. Yet John and Connie had become dear to Kelly, so after Kelly returned home, she and Connie kept in touch. Connie prayed for her over the years. Those years stretched from 5 to 10 to 15. Fifteen years later, Leanne and I were asked to speak at John and Connie's church, Henson Baptist. At lunch after church, Connie happened to sit next to Leanne. Long ago, Connie told Leanne, there was an exchange student named Kelly who is now a flight attendant with Emirates Airlines. She's a very sweet girl. Never mind that Kelly had now become a grown woman. She lives in Dubai. Do you think you can be in touch with her? She's going through a bit of a lonely time. Leanne was delighted to do that. But it was going to be a number of weeks before we returned home to Dubai. So Connie and Leanne both wrote Kelly and told her about our church, Redeemer Church of Dubai. On Connie's recommendation, Kelly found Redeemer and went to church before Leanne even returned. When Kelly walked in, she immediately met Hetty from the, uh, from the Philippines at the welcome table. And then Kanta from India at the book table. And she listened to Pastor Dave from the Republic of Texas preach the gospel. And her heart was strangely warmed. Hetty and Kanta did not know that Kelly was a contact from our travels in the U.S., but they invited her to have lunch and later to attend a small group Bible study where Kelly was received warmly. When Kelly went home after church, she opened her welcome bag, and in it was two books, C.J. Mahaney's book, The Cross-Centered Life, and Two Ways to Live, A Gospel Explanation by Philip Jensen. She devoured them both. When Leanne finally returned to Dubai, she met Kelly and had lunch. And Kelly shared with Leanne about her life and how much she loved the church. And she said, I want to be a member. And then she asked, are there membership dues I need to pay? Leanne smiled and said, no. There are no dues for our church. But there is something very important you must understand to become a member. It's this thing we call the gospel. Oh, then tell me the gospel, said Kelly. Multiple continents, a couple of churches, various world-class cities, many languages, numerous ethnicities, diverse personalities, years of time, spoken and written communication, two lunches, one gospel. When I baptized Kelly in the hotel swimming pool where we have our baptisms, I couldn't help but cry for joy at what God had orchestrated all for his one lost daughter, Kelly. The interesting thing is that Kelly was the one with the least idea that God was conducting people and events to bring her to himself, but he was. And she sees it now. 
In fact, she's joined the welcome team because she expressly desires to reach out to those who don't know God. Who knows what God will do through her? Who knows what lives are being orchestrated right now? In a culture of evangelism, people who love Jesus are working together as instruments in the grand orchestral work of God. We don't always know where he is going. The Holy Spirit, after all, plays a wind instrument. But if we are focused on him and his work, we will get to be a part of it. Often, because of our sin, our weakness, the opposition of the world, we're distracted. We move off key. We miss the blessing of being used by God. So we must be on our guard, most, both corporately and personally, to play well in God's concert. We need to look at these examples in Kelly's story of those who did well in seeing Kelly come to faith. In a maturing culture of evangelism, I've noticed that people are trusting God to do something bigger than what we see with physical eyes. In a culture of evangelism, we call believers uh, to be walking in the faith. We call them to that, open to God's work in people around us. That's one big picture view of Kelly's story. People around her were trusting God to work through them in the lives of others as they walked with Christ. Sometimes that's hard to do. We're lulled into thinking that most people are just what they seem on the outside. We don't believe it for a minute. God is at work. And if we're alert and watchful, we will be used by God to bring words of life to those who are desperate and dying. In a culture of evangelism, we take the long-term view. Connie did not give up on a friendship over time, but prayed and waited for an opportunity. And it came, though it took 15 years. When Paul tells the Corinthians that they have this ministry, he's speaking to all believers, all Christians. Conti and Heta don't think of themselves as evangelists, but they are. In the same way, Paul sees all believers to be evangelists. They're kind, they're thoughtful, stealth evangelists whose feet are shod with gospel readiness. Pastor Dave faithfully preaches the gospel week in and week out. The congregation knows that when they bring friends and family to church, they will hear the gospel. They will often say from the pulpit, those who you are here from other faith backgrounds today or you're checking out Christianity, we want you to know how glad we are that you've come. Please talk with me or any of the elders or people who brought you to church about the sermon today. He says that today as well. The small group Bible study was a kind, personal place to look at scriptures. Leanne didn't blow off an opportunity that came her way. It could have been easy to think that a relationship 15 years old would prove to be a cold dead end. But Leanne was equipped to share the gospel, to probe, to ask questions. Nobody asked Kelly to cross the line. There was no high-pressure technique at all. At one point, Leanne was talking to Kelly. She confirmed that Kelly understood and had committed herself to the gospel. But if you ask Kelly who led her to Christ, she might be a bit confused about the question. She might say the Holy Spirit or a bunch of people. In a culture of evangelism, the goal is for everyone to be sharing and praying and taking opportunities as they come, pitching in, remembering though we can challenge people to come to faith, there's no instructions in the New Testament for a sinner's prayer. We're trusting God to bring into our fellowship those being saved. Our responsibility is to be a faithful witness together. Examples all of a culture of evangelism. When we're walking in faith, trusting that God will work. Amen? Amen.
just an addendum. I can't tell you how much it thrilled my heart uh, last week as we put Philip Van Steenberg on the plane. We were taking him to the airport for him to say, I have never, ever in all of my life seen such beautiful, beautiful displays of the gospel like I have at Redeemer. And I knew it was true, but I wanted to tell you, I want you to be encouraged. I am so, so grateful to be in this travel, this journey together as we lift up the Lord Jesus and call people who are being saved into our fellowship to be sent out into the world. What a joy. Well, I mentioned earlier that some of you might just be listening in, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm I'm thrilled you were. Maybe you've come to church for the first time or going there all your life, and you've realized maybe that all this talk about the gospel has kind of pricked your conscience. I want to call you to turn from an unbelieving way of life. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance isn't just stopping smoking, drinking, and chewing and running with people that do. It's not about all the things the world thinks about sin. It's turning from an unbelieving life, a life that rejects Christ. Sin, sin is a statement of unbelieving life. I want to call you to turn from an unbelieving life and turn to Christ. He's paid for your sins on the cross. He has ransomed your life from darkness into life. If you will but turn to him, repent of an unbelieving life, turn to him with complete faith and trust. And I would love to talk to you about that or talk to the people that you came with if you have more interest in this amazing message we call the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we have this calling to be a part of Redeemer Dubai. We thank you, Father, for the leadership, for Dave, for Glenn, for other others that are here. Father, we thank you for their tireless service and effort. Thank you, Father, that we... Um, speak of a culture of evangelism to to leadership and to elders and to um, regular members in the context of Redeemer that are yearning for that as well with the affections of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would give us the joy of having that kind, that kind of a culture of evangelism in our day, in this place, in Jesus' name.